0: We're reading from Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning at the 22nd verse. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, that you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit will I put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where are God's saints today? As we celebrate this season of all saints, we're celebrating God's saints who, as our liturgy says, shone as lights in their generations. I know I sound very Canadian when I say that, shone. Shone is the Texas way. Shone as lights in their generations. But we easily forget that those saints which this season points to, includes us. In the New Testament, a saint, Hagioi, is a believer, a disciple, a Christian. All of us, if we're following Jesus, are saints in the Bible's view. But we forget this. We forget it all the time. And I'll tell you, this is not a time in the world for us to forget that we're saints. This is not a time in the world for saints to forget who we are and what God has called us to be in the world because the world desperately needs God's saints to be living as God's saints in God's world. We live in a dark world. We live in a world that is corrupt and broken. Even as we honor our veterans today, in the honoring of our veterans, we acknowledge that it means we live in a world of war, of division, of conflict I like the words of General Douglas MacArthur I prayed I said these words many times when my brother was on tour my own brother a veteran the soldier above all others prays for peace for it is the soldier who must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war We know how dark and how broken and how in need this world is. And it is God's saints, the church, that God sends into that dark world. It seems impossible, doesn't it? I mean, you think, just just one or two individual saints going out in the world, broken, imperfect, small as we are. I remember when we first moved to Texas, I've told this story before, but we were driving in. I had the family with me, and we were driving from DFW you know, on the tollway, and all these huge structures. Everything was just so big, so much bigger. Everything's bigger in Texas. And As we are driving, I, I, I said to the girls, I said, don't worry, girls. God is bigger than Texas. And we drove a little further, and again, with a little more urgency, I said, God is bigger than Texas. A third time... God is bigger than Texas, and from the back seat, I heard a small voice say, "We're okay, Daddy, but are you okay?" <laughs> See, as crazy as it sounds, one saint at a time sent into this world. This is how God changes the world. This is how God changes the world. One saint at a time. There's many films that have taken place in the last 20 years about near disasters and destruction of the earth. We live in this sort of age of putting everything on film with this dystopian future. And and one, of course, of those themes can be the big asteroid, right? The big asteroid is coming and it's on a collision course with earth, right? And so what are we going to do? We're going to fly up there. We'll be very Texan and drill a big hole and put a nuclear warhead and try and blow it up, right? Well, I'll tell you, I read about this the other day. NASA actually has a solution for this. like, And it's not drilling a hole and putting a warhead in it. Do you know what NASA's solution is? If there was ever one of these global impact events with a massive asteroid heading towards Earth, NASA has a plan. It's called the NEO program, N-E-O, Near Earth Object Program. And what, this, what they will do is the scientists have figured out that when they see this massive asteroid heading towards us, they will send a tiny satellite out towards it, and it will get out there long before it gets close to Earth. And do you know what this satellite will do? It'll come right up beside that massive asteroid, as close as it can get without touching it, and it will start exerting a tiny bit of gravitational pull on the asteroid. And this is a real thing. This is called gravitational coupling. And you know what will happen? Because of that tiny bit of gravitational pull on that massive asteroid, that tiny satellite will pull its orbit away from earth this is the image of what God's saints do in the world it may seem impossible this task is too big for us and yet God sends his individual saints into the world and with this this tiny person this tiny believer can change the course of human history this is what God's saints do in this world that's what we're celebrating in this season Through our words and through our deeds, changing the world, defeating the darkness. See, in verse 23, we're in Ezekiel 36, if you want to join me there. Ezekiel 36, in verse 23, God speaks this word over this nation of Israel. And he says this, he says, The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In other words, the nations will know that I am the Lord because I'm going to use you to vindicate, to put on display my holiness before the world. But you know what I find really encouraging about Ezekiel 36? As, as a saint, as someone who feels imperfect and broken, and that this task is too big for us, this passage, this whole book, is written to a people in exile. Ezekiel is spoken over a people in exile. This is not over a group of people who say, man, we've really got this sainthood thing down. This is spoken over a people who are utter failures. As Ezekiel's community, as the house of Israel lives in Babylon in exile, it means failure. Exile means failure. God warned Israel. He had made them to be his show people, his sign people, his lights in the world. But had warned them in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Leviticus 18 if you follow after other gods, if you reject me as your God, if you follow after other gods, what does the Lord say to them? He says, The land to which I'm sending you, that land will vomit you out. The gift that I'm given to you, the promise I'm given to you, will literally vomit you out if you are unfaithful. And that's exactly what happened. They were vomited into Babylon. Israel now lives in exile. They're living with this shame all over them. We have failed to be God's people in the world. Three times in verses 22 and 23, does Ezekiel use the word profaned? You have profaned my name among the nations. You, Israel... It doesn't say the nations have profaned my name. You profaned my name. You were my people. You took my name into the nations and defiled it, polluted it, desecrated it, stained it. 31 times in the book of Ezekiel does he use the word profane. This book is all about a people who have totally failed before God. Failed to be his people in this world. And I find that incredibly encouraging because I don't know about you, but I've lived in my own seasons of Babylonian captivity as a saint. I've gone through seasons where I feel like a total failure before God. Perhaps you're in one of those seasons right now where if you're honest, you would say, I am in exile. I don't feel that I'm living in to this call of sainthood, this call to be a light in the world. Or maybe you've just come out of a season of that Babylonian captivity, or maybe you fear you're about to go into one. Hear this good word from God to saints in exile, to saints who have failed. What does God say? In this short word here in Ezekiel 36, he says, first of all, to a saints, a group of saints in exile, the Lord will cleanse you. He's gonna give you something. He's gonna give you a bath. He's going to wash you. He's going to cleanse you. But not only is he going to cleanse saints in exile, he's going to give them character. He's going to do that internal work inside to transform what's broken. It's not enough just to get cleansed. There's got to be a character transformation that goes on. But not only is he going to cleanse these saints in exile, and not only is he going to give them new character, but he's going to make a commitment to this transformation. He's going to put his own name on the line to make sure that it happens. So first, God gives his saints in Babylon a cleansing. Verse 25. I will give you, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. From all your uncleannesses and from your idols, I will cleanse you. It was the idols that had brought them into exile. It was this false worship, this brokenness. And God will come and cleanse them of their sin. Sin is not a popular word in our culture. As I've said many times before, I spent the first few years as a new believer trying to convince people around me that they were sinful. Right? I, I thought, I've got, to, I've got to give them Psalm 14. God looks down from heaven on the sons of men and sees if there's any who follow after God, any who seek the good. No, there's no one who does good, no, not one. Right? I, I thought it was, that was my job to tell the world how sinful they were. That was part of evangelism, but I've realized more and more that nobody really needs that much convincing that they're sinners. They might use another name for it, but they know it. In fact, it's got to the point now where I'll often in a conversation, sitting at a Starbucks or in a casual conversation, when Christianity comes up, you know, it could be at a hockey game. Finally, someone finds out that I'm a priest and they're like, oh, great. And, and the conversation moves in a different direction. And, and, and this often happens. Someone will say to me this, you've heard this. Well, you know, all this religious stuff, thank you very much, but I'm a good person. You, you've heard this before, right? You said this, I'm sure, at some point in your life. I'm a, I'm a good person. And I used to think I had to argue with that, but now my response is to simply say, "Really?" And there's just wait. And it's amazing what happens. They start looking at their feet, and they start, you know, saying, "Well, you know, I, I know, I don't mean I'm perfect, and you know, I've I've done a lot of things wrong in my life, and all the correctives come, right? Because we all know at the core of our being we're broken, and we need to be washed. It was interesting last summer. Uh, with our new uh, mini Schnauzer. Our youngest daughter was uh, one afternoon baptizing the mini Schnauzer in the backyard. Um, and it wasn't, it was, it was she had a rather loud voice and she's got the Trinitarian formula down. So the whole neighborhood's hearing, in the name of the Father, splash, and of the Son, splash, and of the Holy Spirit. And the dog's looking at me like, are you gonna do something about this? And um, like the dog knows this is bad theology. But the, um, but, but at, the, at the end of it, you know, I, I, she, she kept doing this, like multiple baptisms of the same dog. And I finally said to Kirli, I said, honey, don't you think he's clean now? She says, no, he is very dirty. <laughs> but you know, what's interesting when we think of baptism, that actually isn't a terrible reality of baptism. I mean, we, we get baptized once in our life, right? We, we get baptized and there's a core cleansing that happens with that. But there still is a washing that's needed on a regular basis because we are, like my mini schnauzer, very dirty. You see, Jesus, when He cleanses us, and we find this in John thirteen, where Jesus is washing feet. He comes to Peter, and Peter says, "Oh Lord, you know, you'll never wash my feet." And He says, "If you, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part of me." And, G- and Peter says, "Well then, you know, give me a whole bath." And and you know, Peter's always being a little overzealous. And Jesus says, "No, a person who's been cleansed." doesn't need to be washed. They are clean indeed, only their feet. And in that moment, what Jesus is saying is to Peter and all other disciples, he's saying, if you are in me, if you've been baptized, you've had that core washing, you stand holy and righteous and cleansed before a holy God, but you're still gonna get your feet dirty in this world. On a daily basis, you're gonna fall into patterns of sin and you're gonna need to repent of those patterns of sin right? There's a need for us to bring that to the Lord in confession. There is a brokenness we face every day. And if we're honest, this is part of the challenge we have as being God's saints in the world. We're saints. That is our identity. That is our core. And yet we will fall into patterns of sin. The call to repentance, the call to that fresh cleansing. To those saints in exile, God is saying, I will cleanse you. Just just bring that's sin. Just bring that repentance. Bring that confession to me. It's amazing when you think of the words of Psalm 139, which you read just a moment ago. I mean, these words, the first three verses of Psalm 139. Lord, you've searched me out and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You trace my journeys and my resting places. You're acquainted with all my ways. Indeed, there is not a word on my lips, but you, O Lord, know it all together. I mean, this conviction that God knows everything about us, he sees everything about us, and yet he still comes and says, would you just ask me for forgiveness? I'll take it. He he knows how broken we are. He knows how dirty we are. And wrecked we are. And he says, just bring it to me. I'll cleanse you. It's never too much. But see, not only to these Babylonian captive saints, these saints in exile, does he offer cleansing, but then he offers a new character. See, it's not enough to just say you're cleansed and do no other work because the worry is we'll just fall back into that same pattern again and again. There's something internal that needs to change. There's a character transformation that's needed. I need God to literally do some rearrangement within me. Verse 26 and 27. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will I put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is promising us new innards, new heart, new spirit, that we will begin to live a different kind of life, new character, Christ's own character in this world. I think as we think of Pentecost and how this Isaiah 36 passage is really like Joel chapter two, fulfilled at Pentecost, this, this Holy Spirit moment that's poured out on the church, the Holy Spirit that in in, in the Old Testament was poured out on prophets, priests, and kings for particular people at particular times, particular places, particular tasks. Now, as the prophet Joel says, in the latter days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That suddenly God's spirit on that day of Pentecost comes down on the whole of the church. And now for all of us who are in Christ, we have that Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within us. God's own presence. I think the best description of the Holy Spirit's work is the title of Gordon Fee's book on sort of a biblical theology of the Holy Spirit. Gordon was one of my professors. And the the book title is this, God's Empowering Presence. I mean, that's the whole theology of the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence. God coming into our lives to empower us to live a life that we cannot live on our own, a new character grown within us. But here's what's really cool. I'll do this quick. Here's what's really cool. With Pentecost, it's not just that the Spirit comes. On the day of Pentecost, this heart of stone and heart of flesh gets dealt with as well. See, Pentecost grabs all of this heart of stone and heart of flesh prophecy and the spirit prophecy all together and here's how. Okay, so go back to Mount Sinai. So Mount Sinai is where God is giving the law. So God is giving the law to Moses. Moses is up the mountain and he's getting the law of God. And why is God giving the law to Moses? So that God's people, Israel, can live the way they're supposed to live in the world, right? This is going to help them be that sign people, that show people, that people on display in the world, right? To give God the glory. So they're getting the law and Moses is up the mountain. And what happens up the mountain in Exodus 19? Two things happen as the law comes. It's really noisy and there's all kinds of fire. Noise and fire, giving of the law. Moses comes down the mountain with the stone tablets and sees them worshiping a golden idol. And what does Charlton Heston do with those stone tablets? He breaks them. And when he breaks them, it's not just that he's having a a hissy fit. Moses breaks those as a prophetic action. This law that's put on stones, these stone tablets that you, Israel, have already broken this law before it has even been read to you. It's a prophetic reality that Israel will never be able to simply follow the letter of the law written on stone tablets. It will not be enough. The stone tablets will not make us the people we need to be. And so the day of Pentecost comes. Ezekiel is promised here that one day there'll be new hearts that are not stone but rather flesh and a new spirit. And the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two comes, and what do we hear? On the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost, by the way, is a festival celebrating the law being given on Sinai. Yes, there is one author of all the books of scripture. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were all filled with the holy spirit what does that sound like on the day that they're celebrating the law given at sinai where god was going to help us to finally become the people we were to be now on pentecost that celebration noise and fire comes into that room and instead of law being written on stone tablets, it's now being written on their hearts. The Holy Spirit comes into the life of the believer and writes that law on their hearts. So as we read in Second Corinthians chapter 3, Paul describes this new reality that we have. That we have... Is that fire and noise? <laughs> the ushers will direct you, ladies and gentlemen. False alarm. This is the Sunday that we'll all remember. See, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. He knew that we had not taken up the offering yet. (laughs) Well, let me conclude so we can carry on. Is that the Lord telling me I'm going too long? I don't think so. But we'll always remember that noise and fire moment. The point is that God, in his mercy, in Pentecost, and now for all of us through faith, has poured his spirit into us. What he's done in this moment is is changed our insides, no longer a written tablet of law that we cannot live by. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now we are able to have a new character transformation done within us. And of course, as parents, I think this is important to hear, because it means that if this is really where character transformation comes in our children's lives, then our call is to train our children up in the ways of the Lord, to bring them to church, to pray over them. But ultimately, we need to remember that it is the Holy Spirit who will bring the character that we want to see in their lives. And of course, let's stop, let's stop talking about our children in our own lives. It is the Holy Spirit will bring it. Which brings me to my final point. Not only are we cleansed, given that gift of cleansing as a people in exile, not only are we given this gift of new character in this this people in exile, but God is committed to this more than you or I. God is much more committed to our transformation than we are. And I can tell you why. Because verse 22, he says, Thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, declares the Lord God, that I'm about to act, but it is for the sake of my holy name. You see, what God says in this, if you can hear it, and this is gospel, is that it's not about how lovable you are that God is willing to pour out everything to transform your life. I mean, he loves you with an unrelenting love. But at the root of this is God's commitment that his name has been hitched to you and me. He has literally put his name on us in such a way that if we fail in the world, then his name will be profaned. So God is so committed. God is so committed to transforming us to be his people. Do you hear this, oh saints that can fall into exile? Learning to pray like this, oh God, I know that you are more committed to my transformation than I am. Oh Lord, I know that you're more committed to my ministry than I am. Because God is relentless in his zeal that his name would be known in this earth. He has hitched himself to you. He's given you his name. Everything is on the line. That's the level of commitment he brings. And this is great comfort to those of us in exile to those of us who live in exile at times in our lives, and we all will, called to be saints, called to be those lights in the world. I love our baptismal stone, our baptismal font. A friend of mine uh, just the other day said, it's you know probably in the top five baptismal rocks in the world because you know the story, that is from the Sea of Galilee. That stone is from the Sea of Galilee and here's what I love about it. It's our baptismal font. We come in, we see it, there's water there, you can touch it, you can make the sign of the cross, reminding yourself of your baptism. But here's what I love about it, is it reminds me of a particular story that took place at the Sea of Galilee, and oh, is this a comfort for a saint in exile. See, in John 21, Peter, the ultimate failure saint. I mean, he's denied Jesus. He's completely Ruined everything as a leader. And as this this broken saint in exile, what does he do? He puts himself in exile. In John 21, Peter goes back to fishing and he's at the Sea of Galilee. And he's given up. He's going back to his old profession, his old life. This is clearly not working, Jesus. And who meets him on the shore? At the Sea of Galilee, at the Sea of Tiberias. It's Jesus. And he invites him to a meal. And then what does he do? He gives him an opportunity for some cleansing and some character transformation. There's some repentance. There's some recommitment to Jesus. And then he sends him off again, back into the mission field says, Peter, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Feed my lambs. This ultra failure is sent back into the fields because that is Christ's commitment to us, his saints. It will cost God everything. It has cost God his very own son to bring about this commitment in our lives. But he is that committed to his mission in this world. He's that committed to his name. He's that committed to yours and my transformation. Where are God's saints in this world? They're right here. So come, let him cleanse you afresh today through the liturgy. Let him build character again in you because of his Holy Spirit and that new heart he's poured upon you. And know the gospel that he's more committed to this than you are. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.